from everything we know, again, data, anecdote, survey, qualitative interviews, it looks like the problem in law firms is always a little bit worse than it is in most other places. There is going to be a lot of people that we know and respect or have heard of or trust in some way that have acted inappropriately. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites. also host another Legal Talk Network program called Law Technology Now, along with Monica Bay. And Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors, Latera and Clio. Latera, the authority on document creation, collaboration, and control. Increase your productivity, collaborate securely, and ensure protection of your vital information. You can learn more at www.latera.com. And Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Well, Craig, from uh, Hollywood moguls to uh, Washington politicians, it seems like sexual misconduct and harassment allegations have flooded the news cycle. According to a recent article in uh, Bigger Law Firm magazine last year, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission received nearly 13,000 sexual harassment complaints. Well, approximately 90% of victims chose not to take formal action. Uh, But the problem of sexual harassment not only lies in Hollywood and on Capitol Hill, allegations exist in the workplace and especially in law firms. The legal website Above the Law hosts a series titled The Pink Ghetto, which spotlights real-life stories from victims of sexual harassment in law firms. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we will discuss sexual harassment at law firms. We're going to take a look at how recent sexual misconduct allegations in the news have impacted policy at law firms, the prevalence of sexual harassment in the legal profession, and what needs to change in the workplace society. And to help us do that today, Craig, we have two guests. First of all, I'd like to welcome to the program Attorney and Professor Joanna L. Grossman, the inaugural Ellen K. Solander Endowed Chair in Women in the Law at SMU Dedman School of Law. Joanna writes extensively on sex discrimination and workplace equality, with a particular focus on issues such as sexual harassment and pregnancy discrimination. Professor Grossman, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer. Oh, I'm happy to be here. And Bob, our next guest is Attorney Catherine Rubino. Catherine joined the editorial staff at Above the Law back in 2015. In 2013, she started writing a column for Above the Law about her experiences in the legal industry and has authored guest columns at Corporate. Welcome to the show, Catherine Rubino. Hi there. How are you? Great. Well, as everybody knows, if you at least watch a news station or turn open a web page, sexual harassment allegations are all over the place. Trial by Twitter. People are getting fired left and right. Catherine, what led to this? How did it get started? 
Well, you know, um, the allegations that news organizations have been researching uh, really started with Harvey Weinstein, who was apparently an open secret in Hollywood that he had sexually harassed and assaulted uh, various actresses and other employees, or allegedly did that throughout the course of several decades, actually. And from there, there was a Twitter campaign, hashtag Me Too, uh, where both on you know Facebook and Twitter, women from around the country started sharing their stories, saying what has happened to them in terms of sexual harassment and sexual assault. And I, it really took off in a, in a very viral, organic way. And I think one of the things that folks found surprising was how many women that they knew had experienced uh, harassment or assault in their lives. And it was really a very widespread issue. Joanna, on the on the day that we're recording this, uh, just in the news today, we've heard allegations against Matt Lauer, against Garrison Keillor. Uh, it seems that this is just going wild in, in certain industries, especially the entertainment industry. But what about the legal profession? How pervasive is sexual harassment at law firms? From everything we know, it's probably a little bit worse than it is in an average workplace. Now, Hollywood is not an average workplace. Hollywood has had a long history of sexual misconduct and hiding sexual misconduct. Um, there are other sectors we might pick on, media, it's a particular kind of a problem. But if you're thinking about just average workplaces, different industries, different sectors, and we look at rates of harassment, we find that women generally will report about four in 10 of them in a two-year period. We'll say they've experienced something that qualifies as harassment. And in law firms, we'll find that number to be a little bit higher, sometimes as high, depending on the study, as 60% or two-thirds who have either been victimized or been very close to it. Um, so from everything we know, again, data, anecdotes, survey, qualitative interviews, it looks like the problem in law firms is always a little bit worse than it is in most other places. And is that just law firms or is it kind of the legal profession in general? I mean, in, in legal academia, for example, is this happening there? Is it happening at law schools, among students in law schools? I think it's happening in, across the legal profession. We certainly have had many different scandals in academia, many of which have been front page news in the last few years. You might see it a little bit less in certain practice settings. Sometimes the money in law firms and the power allows it to proliferate. You know, you have a rainmaker, for example, who might be the problem, but is also too valuable to crack down on. So the money might change things a little bit in law firm versus, say, a public interest or a government setting. But yes, from everything we know, it's, it's across the legal profession. There's no particular sector that's immune. Catherine, we've seen person after person getting fired and let go today. Matt Lauer was well, actually was fired yesterday uh, as we uh, get this on Tuesday. What actually happened in terms of this trial by Twitter? What happened to due process? Well, in terms of the Matt Lauer situation specifically, we don't know a lot of the allegations. Uh, NBC has kept a lot of things uh, under wraps, but they have indicated that they have done their own internal investigation and that he violated the terms of his employment. So in that instance, I don't think it's fair to call it a trial by Twitter in any way, although the reaction has certainly become viral in a lot of ways. And, there, and I think that that's partially also because Matt Lauer is a figure that people feel an attachment to. He, you know, comes into their home every morning as they watch the news. Uh, you know, it's part of their morning ritual. And so I think that there is also a feeling of, you know, a shock and betrayal. Although I think that to some extent, we've kind of come to a point where we need to realize 
we shouldn't be shocked anymore. There is going to be a lot of people that we know and respect or have heard of or trust in some way that have acted inappropriately. And uh, I don't think that it's necessarily trial by Twitter uh, as these things come to light, but it is a, a recognition that there's a long history and a lot of people who have been hurt by powerful people. And, and this is a finally worth talking about it. Is this largely a, a matter of power? Is this about sex or is this about power? There's no way to really separate them. So it's certainly a sort of common trope to say that rape is about power, not sex. Sexual harassment is a mix. First of all, sexual harassment occurs in all kinds of settings, including at the hands of people without power, lodged against people with power. What kind of ties these recent allegations and recent scandals together is that the people who've been accused are not only in power relative to the other person, but they're in many cases the very top person in the company or the field. So Roger Ailes at Fox News and Harvey Weinstein at Weinstein Media, and we could go down the list, right? This is not, you know, low-level managers who are picking on a subordinate. This is the guy who has the power. So in these particular allegations that have come up, it seems like power is playing a role, not necessarily in creating the harassment or allowing it to happen in the first place, but in allowing it to continue, in hiding it, in allowing a person to use their power to squelch accusers and to make payments in order to quiet them down. So I think power in these recent scandals is more of a factor than you see in a sort of average everyday harassment case. But I don't think there's a way to separate out whether it's about power or about sex. I think it's about both. And how does this flow into politics when I mean, we've seen allegations occur in Congress? Uh, people are stepping down from committees and being asked to resign. We've got candidates running for office that have been accused of it and a president who's been accused of it. How does all of this factor into how do we deal with our politicians in this fashion? Well, one of the surprising things, I think, in some of the political allegations is how ill-equipped political bodies are to deal with this. So, for example, it turned out that after some allegations were made in the Texas legislature that they don't even have a policy. There's no human resources department. There's not even a formal way in which women could complain about harassment. So I think that's one of the surprising pieces. But in some ways, politics is like Hollywood, right? It's a lot of people with a lot of power, a lot of discretion, relatively few constraints, people who work in non-traditional sort of work environments. They're traveling a lot. They're moving around a lot. They don't have a typical chain of command. So it doesn't surprise me that it's rampant in politics. I think the responses we have are troubling. Um, they tend to be political rather than really focusing on the issue and focusing on the harm. But again, it doesn't surprise me, but what we do about it is a little bit surprising. Well, that sounds a lot like law firms as well. I, I mean, Catherine, I know that you and Stacey Zaretsky and others at Above the Law have, we alluded to earlier, been documenting some of the stories of women who've, uh, who've been victims of harassment at law firms what are you seeing? What are you learning from the stories that you're hearing and reporting on? I definitely think that a lot of these themes about power and, and people who are quite literally consider themselves above the law is some of the themes that we're seeing over and over. You know, I think that particularly at large law firms, you have people who are working very long hours. And oftentimes, you know, there's been said that there's a culture of um, a happy hour kind of culture in a lot of law firms, especially big law ones in Manhattan. 
And, you know, that all kind of contributes to situations where people feel like they're being put in vulnerable positions when, you know, it's kind of a requirement for your job to attend happy hours and, you know, partners maybe act inappropriately at those happy hours. You're putting yourself in a position that you don't want to necessarily be in. You know, it's not a good thing to be put in that position where you know that somebody is able to uh, sort of make these harassing comments or even, you know, a lot of times something worse. And some of the stories that, you know, we get sent to us at Above the Law are really shocking, you know, just kind of the worst kind of situations you can imagine where partners would touch, inappropriately physically touch associates or paralegals. We've heard stories like that. And even, you know, publicly, Liz Warren talked about as a law professor, an older colleague chasing her around her desk. I mean, just the most stereotypical, awful situation you can imagine. And it's just, you know, we're women are taught that that is part of what happens at firms. And for a long time, the only way to protect yourself was, you know, to share your stories with other women and to let them know just to be careful that this person was out there. Don't be alone with such and such a partner after hours. You don't know what'll happen. Certainly that's something that I heard when I was, you know, working not as an attorney, but at a law firm, I was told, you know, oh, make sure, just be careful if you work with this person or you work with that person. Nothing more than that, but it's enough to kind of create what has been referred to as the whisper network as a way to kind of protect yourself when, when there's no real recourse for women. How do women effectively deal with, uh, like, for example, the situation in uh, Matt Lauer's where the women that were his co-hosts were basically on the air saying, we love Matt Lauer and he's been great to us and we're terribly sorry. We believe the woman that is in this situation, but how do you handle the situation where you have some respect or you have affection for the man that is involved with it who has behaved very badly? What are the circumstances? That? How, do, how do we get through this? What are men going to do now to, to resolve these issues? I mean, I think that it sucks, right? I mean, I think that what we are learning is you absolutely know somebody you like and trust and have worked with and has, you know, been good to you in your job that has done something inappropriate, made some inappropriate comment, touched someone, made a pass at someone. Inevitably, I think the majority of people in the workplace will realize that somebody that they like or trusted will have done something inappropriate. And we have to kind of work together to figure out what happens next. There's no blueprint. This hasn't really happened, certainly not on this scale before. And, you know, there has to be some recognition of the kinds of behavior that is happening, the inappropriateness of it all. And, you know, we need to, these kinds of conversations where we actually discuss what's happened and admit kind of the severity of the problem, I think are an important step in the process. And if I could just pick up where Catherine left off talking about we have no blueprint. Part of the reason we have no blueprint is not because the harassment is new. We know that this has been happening. What's new is that people are getting fired for it and that women are complaining. And so we haven't had a lot of situations where you've had to sit by and watch someone you like and respect be fired. It's been the case that you've had to sit and watch someone keep their job despite engaging in harassment. So that whole scenario is really something new. And I, you know, I don't know where it's going to end up, but this is something that we're really dealing with for the first time. 
Joanne, I want to pick up on that point in a second, but we need to take a short break. Uh, So stay with us. We're going to be back in just a moment to talk more about sexual harassment at law firms and in the business world more generally. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. Documents are the currency of business. They represent you in every business interaction. Executives need to know what changes have occurred in documents, what metadata risks exist, and how to encrypt, share, and collaborate securely. Vatera simplifies the document creation and collaboration process to protect you from risk and loss of reputation. Vatera offers better solutions for document lifecycle management so you can focus on doing what really matters www.latera.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, and joining us today is Professor Joanna Grossman, the inaugural Ellen K. Solender Endowed Chair in Women and the Law at SMU Dedman School of Law, and also Attorney Catherine Rubino, editor for Above the Law and columnist for Corporate. And Joanna, I wanted to ask, I wanted to follow up on what you were just talking about, but you uh, and Deborah Rohde recently had an article in the Harvard Business Review on understanding legal options if you've been sexually harassed. And you, you're just making the point that we're seeing things happen now, I guess. Uh, but one of the points you make in that article that I guess kind of surprised me is, is that you seem to suggest that in the majority of the cases, women who complain about sexual harassment should be prepared for the fact that there could be repercussions for them as well. Could you explain that a little bit? Sure. So retaliation is the problem, right? And we know a lot of things about retaliation in practice. So one is people who complain about harassment or discrimination at work, a majority of them will experience some kind of retaliation. That could be everything from getting fired, getting demoted, getting ostracized, getting put in you know adverse working conditions, having your shift changed. And we have pretty good studies looking at how common retaliation is. Now, retaliation is independently a violation of anti-discrimination laws. And there are lots of cases that by the time they get to the court, don't have anything left other than a retaliation claim. So it's not that employers are never held accountable for it, but it's not sufficient because it continues to happen. So when women or any kind of victim, right, is deciding, you know, is it worth it for me to file a complaint, right? My employer has set up this procedure. I know that I'm supposed to use it. Is it worth it, right? Retaliation or the prospect of retaliation is certainly one of the things that we know victims do in fact consider. That's part of their decision-making process. And we also know that mostly they're weighing it correctly when they decide not to complain. Um, If you look at people who do complain and how their lives turn out, how their working lives turn out, many of them are worse off in some tangible way down the road, whether it be economic, career, um, emotionally, family, that their lives really get a bit worse from getting put through the ringer of complaining. So it's sort of hard to tell victims on the one hand, of course, you should complain. That's the only way to make it stop. On the other hand, the reality is your life might actually get worse 
rather than better. What is the process after a complaint is filed? What is legally supposed to happen as investigations are made and allegations are, are evaluated and decisions about people's careers are, are made? How is it supposed to work? Well, the law is set up that, you know, sort of in broad brush, harassment is a form of intentional discrimination. So sexual harassment violates Title VII or state anti-discrimination laws. But the way the rules of employer liability have been crafted, they shift everything internally. So employers are supposed to create their own internal grievance procedures that both include policies explaining what's prohibited and geared towards prevention. But the key part of those policies is supposed to set up an internal grievance procedure. So in an ideal world, what would happen is harassment of some kind would occur. The victim would file an internal complaint with human resources or whoever is designated. That person or that committee is supposed to do an investigation. They're supposed to make findings, right, as if they were sort of a mini court. They're supposed to decide, you know, we have evidence or we have what he said and what she said, but we think one of them is more credible than the other. They're supposed to actually make factual determinations. And then based on those determinations, they either take action because they think harassment occurred and something needs to be done, or they don't think harassment occurred and they don't take it. And the woman who is alleging harassment, she can't even get to court until she has gone through this process and then filed an administrative complaint with the EEOC, and only then could she end up potentially filing a lawsuit. So a lot of the pressure is on that internal investigation. Unfortunately, what we know about those investigations is they don't work very well. They're tend to be biased for obvious reasons. The employer has a pretty good incentive not to find harassment and not a very strong one to find it. They tend to not be very thorough. They tend to be done by people who are not trained in investigations. They tend to be done by people who are resistant to make factual determinations. And punishment doesn't tend to correspond very well. Sometimes it's too harsh and sometimes it's not harsh enough, but it doesn't tend to correspond very well. And then in the end of the day, the court's don't hold the employer's feet to the fire. If you do any kind of investigation and you have any kind of a process, then you are deemed a good employer and you will have liability minimized or avoided altogether. So there's no real incentive for employers to get it right. And what we know from every study that's ever been done is mostly they don't. This just sounds like there's really not any hope for a resolution. What's the long-term prognosis for the situation we find ourselves in? We, we have obviously a due process issue. We've got rampant investigations that aren't really legitimate. Women who are are facing worse situations when they do complain. This doesn't lend itself to a a very favorable long-term resolution, or am I just seeing the glasses half empty? Well, I tend to be a bit of a buzzkill on these issues, but I do think that this recent spate of allegations and firings has brought this issue to the forefront in a way that is not going to immediately create change, but at least sets the groundwork for change. So having people talk about their own stories, having people suffer consequences and see people suffer consequences, those are important parts of making some progress on this. But at the end of the day, the law the law is pretty good. It's just not going to do the trick. The law is there as sort of a backstop. But if you want institutions to promote cultures that are non-discriminatory, that don't have rampant harassment, you need those institutions to take it on. You need more self-auditing. You need employers, whether it be a state house or a Hollywood company or a media company, 
a law firm, whoever it is, you need them to take ownership of this and say, I don't want to be an employer where women are on Facebook telling about their hundreds of stories. I don't want to be a company that pays off victims in order to keep valuable men in place. And I think some of these stories that have come out have changed the game on that issue a little bit. I do think there's more accountability. I do think there's more reputational harm for employers that are looking the other way. But the pressure is really on them now to take the ball and to say, what is my workplace like? What am I doing to stop this from happening? And what am I doing to react appropriately? And if they don't do that, you know, it could be that market forces are the best punishment for them. I don't know that that's enough, but I think that's one of the things that's going on here. Well, thank you for that. And it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program. So at this point, we'd like to invite our guests to wrap up and share their final thoughts as well as their contact information so our listeners can reach out to you if they'd like to get a hold of you. So Catherine, let's start with you. Thank you so much for having me on the program today. And I think that Professor Grossman was quite powerful on you know the sort of futility that a lot of women who have faced sexual harassment and sexual assault have faced in the workplace. But I do think that now is a unique time. And I would just encourage to the extent that, you know, it's a safe and powerful thing for victims to do is to tell their stories and to, you know, try as much as possible to uh, hold people accountable. And uh, you can reach me at Catherine, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N, at AboveTheLaw.com or on Twitter at Catherine number one. Great. Thank you very much. And Professor Grossman? I think it's a really interesting time, which is not always a good word, interesting. Um, But I think we do have to really seize the opportunity. Catherine invites victims to seize the opportunity and really make sure their stories are heard and make sure that they hold people accountable. And I certainly second that. And I also encourage everyone else to, we all have skin in this game and everybody has to be a part of this. I don't think anybody's really enjoying this time. I don't think men are enjoying this time worrying about whether they're going to be complained about next. And I don't think employers are enjoying the insecurity. So that's a sign that we need to do something different. We can't just wake up tomorrow and do the same thing. And people have called this a reckoning. And I think there is that potential, but it's going to be a question of what we do with it. Is it going to be a wake-up call that we ignore and move on with our lives or something that really changes the way we do business? And I hope it's the latter. Um, I can be reached by email at jlgrossman, G-R-O-S-S-M-A-N, at smu.edu, or on Twitter at Joanna Grossman, or if you just Google me, you will find me. Great. Well, thank you very much. That brings us to the end of our show. And if you'd like what you want to hear today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. This is Craig Williams with my co-host, Bob Ambrosi. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.